Hello and welcome to the Autism in Real Life podcast. In each episode, you'll get practical strategies by taking a journey into the joys and challenges of life with autism. I'm your host, Ilya Walsh, and I'm an educator and the parent of two young adults, one of which is on the autism spectrum. Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Ilya with the Spectrum Strategy Group. And today I have uh, Sir Simon Baron Cohen with us. Um, and I'm really excited to have him here. I've been reading his work and uh, working with other people, as I've mentioned, uh, with A&E and just in my own uh, research working with other uh, guests. So I figured I would reach out and see if you would be able to join me, Simon. And I'm so happy that we're actually here. So um, if you could give people a little bit of background about yourself and who you are, we have a lot of people listening in who are new to uh, our world that we're immersed in every day. <laughs> um, so if, you know, I think it would be helpful for them to know who you are. Yeah. Of course. So Ilya, thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. It's a pleasure for me to be with you. Um, so, um, so I'm Simon Baron Cohen, and I'm a psychologist. And I've been working in research into autism for over 35 years. And so I've seen a lot of change over that time, both in terms of you know what we've been studying, but also what we, you know, our concept of autism, um, and uh, and our understanding has just deepened a lot over that period. Yeah, absolutely. I think we still think of uh, autism as a, I, I, I'm going to use the phrase like a young diagnosis because it is, I feel sometimes so new and we're still learning. Not that the people presenting are new. It's not like it's something that's just popped up in the last, you know, 30 years. Um, I mean, I right. think, um, so is it a young diagnosis? Well, you know, um, everybody points to Kanner, Leo Kanner as the, the doctor who first described autism, and that was back in 1943. Some people dispute whether he was the first one because Hans Asperger gave a lecture on autism in Vienna in 1937. So, you know, um, but it certainly it goes, it goes back quite a long way. But I think you're right that for a lot of um, the 20th century, the research and, and kind of clinical knowledge was quite limited. And it's only been really since the year 2000 and into this century that we've seen a lot of scientists move into this field. So suddenly it's becoming a, a more mature area of research. And there's a lot more kind of clinical training, clinical services, more awareness. So uh, so in that sense, it probably still feels quite, quite young. Right, right. Yeah, no, definitely. I feel like uh, when I first started in my education career, which was in 
2002, um, I I remember, you know, this was it was really special education or right general education. That was sort of my choices at the time. Um, but now you could have all of these subspecialties in autism. And I, you know, I would love to have been there. I remember autism being I joke that it was like one column in a textbook of the special education textbook, you know, mixed in with a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah. You know, and I think now there's lots of, of resources. There's lots of books that are being published. Um, there's lots of material for teachers, for clinicians, for parents, um, and for autistic people themselves. So I think, I think that, you know, the, uh, I suppose the tools available are, you know, they're kind of, blossoming yeah. um, but you're right even back in when you started it was mm -hmm. still you know still quite slender in terms of you know <laughs> um, sort of what we knew what we understood yeah right so how did you get started in this work because we'll talk about the books and all that stuff in a minute but sure um so my personal story is that after i graduated um so i studied a degree called human sciences which is like a mix of social sciences and biological sciences. Uh, and I quite like that hybrid. But after I graduated, I, I, I worked as a teacher in a small unit for autistic kids. Uh, this was like 1981, long time ago, mm -hmm. uh, when, you know, there weren't very many of these special units around. Um, and I just got to, I got to know, you know, a small number of kids and a lot of, depth that's the way i i sort of saw it as like an immersion mm -hmm. um, so there were only six kids and there were six teachers in this unit wow so it was like one to one although mm -hmm. we rotate so we got to we all the teachers got to work with all the kids um the place was called family tree and that's because they really welcomed the families to come in and you know see what we could learn from the parents like what, how was the child at home you know, were they were they behaving very differently at home or at school? Um, and it was it was a very open minded environment. And I just I found it fascinating. I found, you know, that the teachers were inspiring. And I went on to do a PhD just because I had kind of more of a scientific kind of mind. You know, I wasn't just wanting to do the practical stuff. I also wanted to understand what was causing autism and that, you know, so I've tried to kind of keep both both of those going throughout my career, the kind of curiosity about what's causing it, but also the practical side about what can we do to help. Right. And and again, that's where I, I uh, want to bring as many resources and tools. I mean, my company is Spectrum Strategies. <laughs> so really trying to offer up. And we, we also, um, I mean, at least in my experience, you know, not everything works for everyone. So we need to have as many tools as we can in the toolbox. Um, it's funny you talk about the, at my first master's is in, um, it was business, but it was in human management systems, which now would probably be more like organizational development. But what I um, what I really loved about it was the whole concept of how you build an organization, all different types, and why um, why some work and why they don't, and what are the dynamics within that. So in reading your book, The Pattern Seekers, I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> maybe there's something there. Um, but we'll, we'll talk yeah. about that in a second. Yeah. Sure. I'll just to touch on it briefly, but we'll come back to it. 
you know, some people some people think of systems as um, like your computer in front of you uh, or a car engine, you know. But actually, an organization is a system too, you know, with people flowing through it or information th- flowing through it. And you can make the organization more efficient or less efficient, depending on how you kind of design it uh, <laughs> or, how, you know, or how it's kind of evolved. Um, right. And, and you, know, w- you know, part of my interest is, you know, is that autistic people often, you know, have, think about systems in a very logical step at one step at a time kind of way. Um, wh- whether it's an organization which is kind of more of a macro type system or whether it's, I don't know, the Lego c- building blocks that they're playing with, you know, in their bedroom where it's one brick at a time, you know, it's kind of, it's the same kind of systems thinking. Right. Right. And yeah, I want to ask you that question a little bit. But um, so in reading this, this you have a lot of books out, um, but this one has just recently come out at the end of 2020. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so I was drawn to that. And I think now I need to go back and read <laughs> some other um, some other pieces of your work. Um, but when I first opened the book, right, you introduce Al and Jonah um, mm. and they um you know, I resonated with those, I, I, I don't want to say case studies, but with those characters um, who are real people. Um, but I resonated with them because the story is so similar to what I've heard working with families, working in a school, and also with my own my own son. Um, yeah. And what I really loved was with Jonah the um, physician they were working with, the family, you know, puts the X on this chart. And really explains that, you know, the X represents, um, you know, that this is just where Jonah is at. It doesn't make him better or worse or anything, just a difference. Yeah. Yeah. So for people who are listening who haven't yet read this book, (laughs) The Pattern Seekers, you know, the chart you're describing is... um, it's like one of these developmental milestones charts that pediatricians might have in their office. And it's actually about language development because it turns out that kids develop language at very different rates. You know, some kids have hundreds of words before their second birthday and other kids have no words at all before their second birthday. So there's huge kind of individual variation and, and everything in between. And that chart just shows kind of different trajectories or kind of um, paths that different kids take. But Jonah, this kid, um, who we later learn is autistic, you know, is really late in developing language. So he's like an outlier. You know, he's below the the, the bottom 10 percentile. Um, but the pediatrician very kind of, I think, very kindly and gently explains to the mother that, you know, just because a child is late to talk, you know, doesn't necessarily say anything about their future. You know, you could, you know, a a parent could become very, I suppose, um, concerned and maybe lose hope as to what is my child's future. But actually, you know, a lot of kids are late to talk because language is not where their strengths lie. Their strengths may lie in something else, you know, in more kind of spatial abilities. Uh, We'll talk about pattern recognition, Mm -hmm. 
you know, right. and that and that we we all have strengths and and weaknesses or challenges, and the the trick is to kind of focus on on your strengths. Right. It it seems like such a such a simple concept, right? And and it's something that I, even in my uh, own educational career, I said, well, we we need to focus on each individual's strengths and cultivate that. But you know, at least here in the traditional public school system, we're so much uh, we're driven by you know what the social construct is of a typical public school and what the expectations are and standardized testing whether it's a, you know the school testing or state testing or national testing um that it makes it so hard to get all of that in and especially now with covid it's just a whole another added layer of challenge yeah. here but yeah but i mean yeah. i think so again you know let's go back to jonah because this is this little kid that i describe in the first chapter of the book and many parents will identify as this is their kid. Uh, or, and many adults who are autistic may look back on their own childhood and identify with Jonah, you know. But, you know, he's he's being expected to fit into a mainstream, typical classroom or educational system. You know, and that's that's the big kind of problem that I address in the book is, you know, is that is that actually doing harm to a certain percentage of kids? You know, not you know, mainstream school works for maybe seventy-five percent of kids, but it doesn't seem to work for about twenty-five percent of kids. Well, you know, yeah. in your country, in in the US, something like twenty-five percent of kids don't don't finish high school. Mm-hmm. It's it's a big chunk of kids, right? Right. And right. They, they're not all autistic. They might have a whole range of of issues. Mm-hmm. Some, some of them may come under this term neurodiversity, Mm -hmm. different profiles. But the problem, I think we can call it a problem, is that we're sort of pushing, forcing kids through a mainstream typical pipeline as as if everybody fits into that pipeline. And in the process, we can do a lot of damage. You know, we can make kids feel miserable, feel very kind of low self-confidence because they're not you know, th- because that educational space is is not well suited to their learning style. Right, right. Um, so when we look at this, we, and we we look at, um, I think Al and Jonah kind of represent maybe two different trajectories, as you said, of how one would nurture. And I'm kind of you know jumping around a little bit, but how one would nurture um, two different. Well, no, not necessarily two different profiles, but similar profiles. But then when we nurture them differently, or when we expose them and work with them differently, how they could have very different paths. Um, And so, you know, before we kind of get to that piece, I really want to talk about what this whole concept of pattern seeking, um, you know, and what you called systemizing mechanism, um, which, you know, and and all that, let's, let's really start talking about Mm. that whole concept that you uh, present in the book. Sure. So again, just to kind of um, help your listeners, we, we, we also meet this other kid called Al, mm-hmm. and he's constantly experimenting. And this kind of goes right to the heart of this pattern seeking. You know, he's always doing little experiments at home, in his bedroom, or in the basement, or, you know, wherever he is, out in the, in the garden, he's always experimenting with things. And what we learn later is that Al 
grows up to be Thomas Edison, the inventor who we famously think of as the guy who invented the first electric light bulb. But actually, he was unstoppable in inventing things. He had hundreds of patents. But also, you know, from descriptions, from biographies, he was quite autistic, or at least he had a lot of autistic traits. And part of what the book does is try to ask this question, is there a link between invention, the capacity for invention, which is all about experimenting with patterns, and autism? You know, but anyway, so your question is about, you know, what do we mean by pattern seeking? And I, in my book, what I do is focus on a very special kind of pattern, which I call if and then patterns. You know, if I take one thing and I, you know, change it in some way, then I get a different, I get an outcome. So if and then, it's a kind of logic. Mm -hmm. and I, I borrowed it from a, a logician called George Boole. People, many of your listeners will know that name. Um, but he was a 19th century logician who's kind of credited with um, explaining the basis for modern day computers, really. Um, but, you know, this, this is, in the book, what I argue is that between 70 and 100,000 years ago, there was a change in the human brain, which allowed humans alone, no other species can do it, to recognize these if and then patterns. And, and, and these three words, if and then, you know, th those are the rules that govern any system. You were talking about organizational systems, and I mentioned mechanical systems, but it's also true in mathematical systems or musical systems. Um, you know, even natural systems like the weather, you know, if and then. Those, those are the patterns we see over and over again. And what, what pattern seekers do is they either want to vary the if, so they'll kind of tweak it, or they'll vary the and. Again, you can tweak it like a variable, because then you get a different outcome. And you know that you know that turns out to be why humans alone are the only species that can invent, and we and why we dominate the planet. But if we kind of look at the history of inventors, many of them have a lot of autistic traits. And if we look at autistic people today, many of them are very talented at this if and then reasoning, which kind of leads me in later in the book to conclude that actually autistic people may have played a major part in kind of the progress that humans have made in the evolution of human invention. And then I go into a lot of the scientific evidence to show that there are these connections. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, when I when I think about this concept of if and then and the experimentation with that, I was struck by a piece where someone kind of labeled that as the restrictive repetitive behaviors that we use in diagnose, you know, in diagnosing. Yeah. Um, and and I really was struck by adding like this medical label, the way you said, you know, you said that it's like we're adding this medical label to something. If we looked at it differently, is this experimentation, right? Absolutely. So, so the, the way, so I call the change in the human brain, the systemizing mechanism. 
And what this mechanism does is it looks for these patterns, the if and then patterns, but then it repeats them over and over again, because in order to know that the pattern is true, you need to get the same result, not just once, but many, many times. And mm -hmm. you know, engineers know this, that you know, when you've designed a new system, you kind of almost test it to, you know, to the nth degree. You might test it a thousand times or a million times to see if you get the same result every time. And we do that because we care that the system works to a great level of precision and accuracy. You know, if you think about planes landing on the runway, <laughs> sure. you know, it, has to, it has to work every time, right? Right. But, you know, when autistic kids are doing the, this so-called repetitive behavior, where they're looking to see if they get the same result every time, you know, the medical profession call this some kind of obsession. Mm -hmm. um, they often describe it as a pathology, whereas in fact it may be the child's learning style that they're curious about rules and systems in the world, and they're trying to discover them. So first you kind of identify the pattern and you repeat your observations or your experiments to see if you get the same result each time. You know, think about a young autistic kid who becomes really, in quotes, obsessive about light switches in the house. So they, they're playing with all the light switches to see which switch controls which light bulb, you know, and they get very upset if somebody comes in and tries to interrupt their little experiments where this light switch has to be in the down position and this one has to be in the up position. You know, they're effectively kind of trying to understand the electrical circuitry in the house. It's incredible. But you mm -hmm. see these two or three-year-old kids doing this, and the psychiatrist might say repetitive, um, you know, uh, narrow interests, uh, which in the old days they used to say you should discourage it, mm -hmm. you know. Right. So, so if we take that and we overlay that onto special interests, which is what you know we're, we're kind of calling that a little bit now, and and being able to um, support them and use them as a way to help encourage kids to learn other things as well, um, you know, I, I think you also mention in the book that you know this um, the fascination with these types of experiments can also be detrimental. And I think that's where people get concerned, especially families or, you know, educators saying, well, they need to learn other things and we need to yeah. kind of try to shift attention. And mm. then we talk about difficulties with transition, right, from one topic to another. Um, so I feel like there's this fine balance between nurturing that and also making sure, you know, especially as we get into adulthood, the showering and making sure you sleep and you can't like totally obsess about one thing all the time to your detriment. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's where, you know, a gifted teacher can make a big difference. So um, in my book, what, you know, what I recommend is that we start with the child's interests because then at least you've got the child with you. you know, that if you kind of join them in their world, if the child is fascinated by, well, Jonah was fascinated by leaves and why every leaf in, in the, the, he, he was picking up in the park had a different pattern. And he wanted to sort of see what the patterns were, you know, the little veins in the leaves and the shapes of the leaves. But a good teacher would say, okay, if that's what Jonah is interested in, let's start with that. And then we can sort of go to just like one baby step at a time. We can go to something that's linked to leaves, like let's look at the whole tree. And, you know, 
why are these trees growing in this particular part of the world? And when did they get here? Because actually they came from a different part of the world. And very quickly you're into geography and you're into history. Sure. So, you know, and teachers have always known that they can do this, but it, it takes that kind of opportunity where you've got time, where you, you know, you're not just teaching 30 kids the same thing. It has to be much more tailored to the individual. And I think all children would benefit from that type of, um, you know, that type of education, this very um, taking this one concept. And I remember teaching a class to oh, probably 30 educators and someone said, I, I, my children were blessed to have teachers like this, a couple of teachers, especially in high school. And I had a teacher say, but that is just so much work. <laughs> And I was like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's more work, but in some ways it's more fun for both the teacher and the student. Absolutely. Like it's no fun for the teacher to just kind of be standing up in front of 30 kids um, where the kids are kind of not excited or inspired. You know, the kids are bored, the teacher feels they're just kind of doing the job. You know, it's much more fun to engage with one or a small number and and kind of react to the child. Right. You know, they're not the the child is not just the kind of passive, you know, person who's just absorbing the teacher's lecture, as it were. <laughs> it's much more of a kind of, you know, let's see what happens. Right. Right. And so um you know, when we look at, you were talking about the, these different systems and really contributing to the larger picture of how we live our life, really. I mean, you, you talk about, you know, legal systems, you talk about, um, you know, mathematics, military constructs, like all of the mu- music, religion, art, like all of that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. So for me, um, I had to go in, ha- I had to go into the field of archaeology, to really look at the history of how long have humans been able to invent. And so, and and really the only evidence you have is what's left in the archaeological record. And so I was, you know, I was looking at like the first musical instrument, at least the earliest one that's been found, which Mm -hmm. dates back 40,000 years. And it's a flute made from a hollow bone from a bird. And when I saw this, I, I went to the little museum in Germany where it, it, it's, it's, it's kept, but it's right next door to the cave where it was found. And I had the kind of privilege to talk to the archeologist who found this, the earliest musical instrument. You know, it's, it's an amazing experience, but what I was trying to do was imagine the person who made this instrument. And if you, so, if you kind of just um, bear with me, you know, the inventor of this flute would have thought, if I blow down this hollow bone and I cover a hole in the bone, then it'll make a particular note. So it's if and then. It's the same kind of algorithm that we talked about earlier. You know, but if I blow down the hollow bone and uncover the hole, it makes a different note. So you've got this kind of ancestor of ours, 40,000 years ago, experimenting with making different sounds, um, inventing a new system, which was a musical instrument, inventing another system, which is a system of notes, which is music itself, you know, 
And that's just one example. You could you could sort of see this experimenting going on in, as you said, in mathematics and in all sorts of fields. You know, that if I take the number three and I cube it, then I get the number 27. And it's you get that same result every time. Right. So that goes back to the re repetition, right? Trying it over and over again. And when we look at some of these exact disciplines that we talked about, and you mentioned many others like dance and um, yeah, I mean, there's just a whole list of them, but this is what we do, right? We experiment with a, a particular movement or a particular art style or different yeah. instruments. And we keep trying to apply the same thing over and over again. Um, and it actually kind of, you know, it, what we do then is then say, okay, well, if I change how I do that little bit of a movement, or if I change my finger placement on the instrument, I'm yeah. going to get a different sound. And I think allowing for that exploration is yeah. something that, you know, I think we could get caught, especially sometimes in the arts, because there is more room sometimes for that interpretation where we can get really stuck in what the conventions are, right? You learn art a particular way, you learn music yeah. a particular way. Yeah, but my experience, again, bringing this back to autistic people, is that they like to confirm the rule, so they kind of repeat the exact same uh, steps. You know, they might, they, so if it's a dance routine you were just talking about, they might want to repeat the exact same sequence over and over again. But once they've really mastered it, then they will want to introduce some variation, you know, change, change the sequence or, you know, um, and that's where you get uh, what I what I would call invention. If it's if it's a new sequence, it's invention. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I think we should be kind of um, encouraging autistic kids to follow what they do naturally, which is to experiment. You know, a lot of these kids, they're not doing it because they've been taught to do it in a particular way. They've just, you know, they're they are. Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, they're trying a sequence, they'll repeat it over and over. You know, if you put an autistic kid in front of a keyboard, a piano, they'll they'll mm -hmm. do, they'll they'll do their little sequence and they might, you know, it might drive parents crazy that they'll do the same <laughs> sequence a hundred times or whatever. Right. But you know, once they've nailed it, they'll then introduce some variation. And you know, that's you know, it's um well in the book I kind of argue that this is this is what's driven innovation. Mm -hmm. in, in all areas of, of human life. Yeah, you also mentioned there's a, a particular thing that I'll just read because I found it, uh, I think it's central to what we're talking about here is you say both Al and Jonah looked at the world in a fresh way, uninfluenced by social convention, not feeling compelled to follow the consensus. And I've talked to many people about a variety of different topics um, on the podcast, and we come back to that same I, 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 I feel like it's a blessing, right? To not yeah. have to think about those things or not think of, just not think about them. Absolutely. So, you know, the, let's talk about everyone else, the sort of so-called neurotypical population, because, you know, other people, the, the neurotypical population, you know, f almost feel compelled to follow the crowd, you know, not just in terms of fashion, you know, like, what are you meant to wear? Which are the cool trainers or whatever? But it's also in terms of how to think, what, you know, what to do. They're not necessarily thinking for themselves. And they'll often accept 
the received wisdom. You know that if a teacher says this is the way, this is this is how the world is, they'll just accept it in an unquestioning way, because they're kind of learning from others. But autistic people may, you know, may question that. They they're not satisfied that just because someone tells me this is the way things are, that it has to be that way, or they want reasons for it, or they want to figure it out for themselves. And again, that does open up that space for um, thinking differently. And we might come onto this, but in the workplace, you know, companies are really, um, they're looking for people like that, people who right. think differently, because you can get a step change in how you make your product or, you know, how, how your company works. Yeah. And, and again, yeah, I was, I was going to jump to that, but let's, let's talk about it because we're here. And one of the things is we talk about Jonah as, as an adult. Um, and one of the places he finds himself in is having difficulty with employment um, and difficulty with relationship. Mm. Um, and that is a very common scenario for many of our, you know, many folks in our community. So if, you know, if we can, it feels sometimes for me, even working with people that if we could just get past this barrier of where some of the challenges might lie and mm. get to this area where we can allow people to explore these gifts that they have, we can then get to that place where the people are creating some amazing things and inventing yeah. amazing things. But it's, it feels like there's this hard place to get past a little bit. Yeah. So, so in, in my book, I kind of, um, later, in a later chapter, we kind of meet Jonah again. First, we met him as a young child, but now we meet him as an adult. And we hear that he's unemployed, that he's put in lots and lots of job applications, like over 400, never heard back from them. He's developed depression um, just because of a sense of that he doesn't fit in, that he's not valued. Um and this is very common in a lot of adults with, with autism, you know, that they don't just have autism, they also have poor mental health. You know, and we, we should probably sort of discuss, like, what are the barriers to getting a job for an autistic person? Because if companies or workplaces are kind of just always doing the same kind of hiring, where they expect people to come to an interview and have all the social skills to get through an interview including eye contact and understanding, I don't know, uh, language that may not be very clear. You know, they're expected to read between the lines. You know, you know, it may be that, that the whole experience of the interview is, is really difficult for them. And that maybe that's one of the reasons why they're not getting, getting hired. But there may be mm -hmm. lots of other reasons too, in, including stigma. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the point really is that once you know, if if uh, if an employer is open-minded, um, and hires an hires an autistic person, that person could make really fantastic contributions to the workplace. You know, the autistic people like to stay on one task at a time and do it thoroughly. They don't like to cut corners or to approximate. They want to do things in a very precise way. Um. They don't really like to stop until they're finished. So they kind of, they're willing to stick at, at something much longer. Mm -hmm. um, they might need extra support, and that's reasonable because autism is a disability. 
And, you know, the, un, under the law, we, you know, employers have to provide, in this country, we call it reasonable adjustments mm-hmm. for if a person has a disability. Yeah, no, here too. I mean, we have, you know, reasonable accommodations, pretty much the same. Um, but language can also be a, an important piece of that. But I think uh, awareness, I think we're so used to doing things the same way, having been in human resources and hiring and uh, being part of that process. It's it's really challenging to find organizations that are starting to interview a different way, look for candidates in a different way. They are, it is happening definitely. Um, but, but it's a, it's been a slow, a slow movement, I think in there. Yeah. But, you know, I'm quite impressed that, um, really just like last year during the pandemic and this year, there's a lot more talk about neurodiversity. Um, so, I don't know about in the US, but here in the UK, there's, you know, we've just come out of, it's called Celebrating Neurodiversity Week. So it's a whole mm-hmm. week where they're celebrating not just autistic people in the workplace, but also people with dyslexia, with ADHD, with dyspraxia, dyscalculia, a whole range of so-called neurodiverse profiles. And to me, this is very encouraging. Mm-hmm. If you went back five or 10 years, no one was talking about this. I know, right. I know in the autism world, we've had the, we've had the concept of neurodiversity for like 20 years, I think. Mm-hmm. But the wider world wasn't really, it, they didn't pick up that phrase. Whereas now, as you say, in HR, in a lot of organizations, they're not just thinking about gender diversity or ethnic diversity, but also neurodiversity. Right. You know, yeah, and 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 it is a beautiful thing. We are we are moving moving there. And so you do talk about neurodiversity, um, and there's um, the one chapter with the five types of brains that I'm thinking of. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think you you do a really great job of explaining, you know, a way that you can look at neurodiversity. Yeah. So we've talked um, a lot about systemizing mm-hmm. um, and how people. Um, differ in how strongly they systemize, how interested they are in patterns in the world. But there's another kind of dimension in the mind, which is empathy. Uh, and again, people vary in how you know how strong their drive is to empathize. Some people do this all the time, uh, and other people do it far less. Uh, so these are kind of like bell curves in the population uh, that most people are just average, but some people are above average in systemizing or empathy, and others are below average. And in this model that you you mentioned in my book, I, I, I argue that in any population, you can divide people into one of five brain types. So it's kind of, uh, that what's, what's their style of processing information? Uh, so some people are much more focused on systems than they are on people and empathy. Other people have the reverse profile, much more focused on people than they are on systems. Some people are kind of in the middle where they're equally good at empathy and at systemizing. And then there are the extremes of both of these. So people who systemize nonstop, but really struggle with empathy. 
And uh, a lot of autistic people fall into that group. And then the other extreme is people who empathize to an extreme. They're always thinking about other people's feelings and thoughts and worrying about others, but they, they are not very interested in patterns at all, may even struggle with them. So these are kind of five brain types. And I see this as um, another way to talk about neurodiversity because neurodiversity doesn't just include people who have a diagnosis. It includes all of us. You know, we all have, we all have different brains to each other. You know, somehow we, we try to connect. You know, you and I are having this conversation, but we may have very different types of brains. And you know, we... But our education systems and our workplace and other kind of, um, you know, or, uh, uh, other parts of society have to make space for these different brain types. Um, just in terms of, you know, what we find easy and what we find um, challenging. So if if we think about those different brain types, I, I feel in other just personal work that I've done can some of those be impacted by the environment around them and how they've been raised or what experiences they've had? Um, can some of that, I, I feel like maybe the answer is that there is a, an in, you know, like they, there is a baseline of that we're all kind of fall into one of those buckets, but based on our experiences and our environment, maybe we end up in a, a different one than we could have been. Does that make sense? Sure. I mean, you know, nothing in human behavior is 100% genetic. You know, actually in, in the book, I, I go into some of the evidence to show that both empathy and systemizing are partly genetic. And that's because we've been able to do these very large scale studies, um, you know, with thousands of people in the population where you ask people to uh, take a test, but also to donate their DNA through a saliva sample. I mean, you can look at the genetic associations with how you score on the test of systemizing or empathy. And it turns out both, both of those are partly genetic, but that, that does leave a lot of room for environmental experience, for, for learning. Um, and we know as parents that we spend a lot of time, you know, trying to teach our kids and teachers do the same thing, and you know, we would there would be no point in in trying to teach kids things if it was purely genetic, <laughs> you know. So so learning has a has a has an important role too. Uh, the yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I think you you mentioned parents. I, I know there's also another chapter in your book which I think is uh, fun in its title is Sex in the Valley, and it talks about right parents. What's the link between parents who might also have highly systemized thinking yeah. and children who are autistic. And I know I, I did mention the outsides of the U.S., right? We have the Northeast and we have California specifically um, being these what we call like hot, you know, hot spots for autism. Yeah. But is that because of the people who tend to work in, you know, the Massachusetts area and the California yeah. area? Yeah, exactly. So um, anecdotally, people have been saying for over 20 years that autism rates are much higher in Silicon Valley. You know, and, and, and people speculate, is that because people who are good at systems thinking 
um, you know, they, they work in IT, for example. Um, they move to places like Silicon Valley and they start families. Um, and so, that, so then you see like a cluster of uh, aut- autism in their kids, you know. So we, we, we studied this, not in Silicon Valley in California, but in, somewhere in Europe, um, a place called Eindhoven in the Netherlands, which is kind of like the Silicon Valley of the Netherlands. It's got the Institute of Technology there. It's also got the Philips factory there, which has been there for over 100 years, almost like a magnet attracting people who are good at at technology. And we found autism rates were twice as high there than in other Dutch cities that we compared it to. So that suggests that there is this partly genetic component, but it's telling us that the genes that we see in these families in some individuals, it results in autism, but in other individuals, it results in um, aptitude, uh, and sometimes both, you know, autism and aptitude in systems. And we were able to do a kind of genetic analysis where we looked at what are the genes that are involved in pattern recognition, and what are the genes that are involved in autism, and we found that they overlap quite significantly. So to me, this was like um quite a sort of an important moment in our research because previously people had been talking about autism genetics as if these were you know mutations these were like disease genes you know that as if these cause you know disorder or dysfunction you know whereas we were finding that actually the many of the same genes that are associated with autism cause talent you know um, and it just kind of changes the way we think about autism. Yeah, definitely. Of course, there's the disability. I don't want to kind of ignore it. But autism is more than just a disability. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think, you know, as we talk about um, being parent educators or, you know, people who support, whether you're a clinician or a coach, um, you know, I think it goes back to that nurturing piece and it goes back to identifying what is this particular individual's areas of interest and their strengths and then sort of leveraging those. Um, what, you know, what would you, I, I, and I know we're kind of wrapping up here, but what would be your takeaways like for someone, you know, as I say, living with, working with, loving someone uh, with yeah. autism? Yeah. Um. So I think uh, there are many takeaways. Um, you know, the first one is that you know we have to keep we have to keep in mind that autistic kids and adults they they need to be in the right environment in order to shine. You know, if you put them in the wrong environment, they're going to struggle, and then you might see kind of real stress, not just anxiety, but you might see. I don't know, self-injury, you know, you, I mean, you've, you've, you've met kids like this and adults like this who are so stressed that they're hitting their heads against the wall, that they're, um, they're really unhappy. But then you move them into an environment that they can not just cope with, but they can really blossom in. And a lot of that kind of um, very distressing behavior goes away. And you see them actually very content and able to learn, and often doing things that nobody expected they could do. 
So it is all about sort of, you know, making sure that the individual is in the right setting. Mm -hmm. um, and that goes back to our discussion about if you put the kids, uh, put a kid into the wrong school, you know, they can have a miserable time. And that's just a waste of their opportunity for education because you only get one chance as a child. Um, right. So I think that's one of the take-home messages. The other one, I guess, is that, you know, the book, The Pattern Seekers, uh, makes the argument that actually we wouldn't be where we are today as a species without autistic people having played a central role in the evolution of invention. And yet, when we look around, you know, society is kind of leaving out autistic people, you know, that they have high rates of poor mental health, unemployment, high rates of, of attempted suicide or even completed suicide. You know, this is, it's like a kind of tragedy going on. And it's kind of time for society to wake up to what we've been doing to autistic people and just to change the way we organize institutions in society so that they're more welcoming. Every aspect of our society needs to be welcoming to autistic people. Right. I think that would be the exact way to end <laughs> this conversation because it's definitely hit home for me. Um, and I really appreciate you bringing that here because um, it's definitely a message that all listeners need to be um, aware of and have in their forefront when working with uh, working with and within our community. So thank you so much for being here with me. Well, thank you. But also thank you for having this podcast because you are doing your part to educate, to raise awareness and to make sure that, you know, the conversation continues about how we can, how we can support autistic people and their families. Oh, thank you so much for that. Okay. Well, take care and perhaps we will talk again soon. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Autism in Real Life. This is Elia Walsh, and if you like the show, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. I also offer training, consultations, and parent coaching, and would love to help you in any way that I can. You can check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com, and when you join my email list, you can get a code to receive a discount off of an online class or a coaching session. Looking forward to hearing from you. Take care and see you next time.